Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, September 12th, 2021. I looked at Face the Nation and Meet the Press. Brendan, what'd you look at? Yeah, I looked at Fox News Sunday. I looked at State of the Union and I looked at This Week. There was a lot of topics talked about today. Oh my gosh, so many topics. A lot about the vaccine mandate. Mm Mm-hmm. Also quite a bit about infrastructure and the reconciliation bill yeah more specifically the reconciliation bill but there was also talk about september 11th and marking 20 years the anniversary Mm -hmm. yeah there was quite a bit of talk about that and some other topics for example i've got to give a shout out to this week for having a really good well-reported segment at the end of their episode talking about the california recall election we care a lot about that but as the piece explained it's something that all democrats should be worried about because a potential republican governor could be installed with a minority of the vote who would have the ability to appoint republican senators if anything should happen to our two remaining ones one of which is very old. That's true. And, well, this is kind of a side note for our audience, but Brendan and I have lived in California for a long time, but we're not native Californians. So we have really interesting hot takes on things like the California recall. Mm -hmm. But always interesting when East Coast media actually gets California politics right. I just want to say that... Back in high school. Baby Brendan? Yes. I think it was the first political column I had in high school, which I started in the high school newspaper, Uh was called, it was headlined, There is No Room for Recall in a Republic. (laughs) And it was about the recall of potential recall at that point of Gray Davis. And you stand by it. And I stand by it. (laughs) As a republic, we should not be recalling our elected officials. That's what elections are for. We elect elected officials to use their own judicious judgment to make decisions on our behalf. And if they break the law, (laughs) certainly they should be removed. But barring that, we wait for another election. Otherwise, you're going to have people worried about public opinion and every decision instead of well and then in california the governors there's they're always facing a recall yes but there's only been i think four or five in american history of any governor yeah there's just often an attempt to and very rarely there's they actually make it yeah wow that was quite the segue but none of it surprised me um (laughs) well you should remember that article no i remember the article none of it surprises me that you're bringing it up in our (laughs) podcast like 20 years later is what i'm saying (laughs) So let's get to quality questionable. The recall did not make the cut. That's why I had to mention it there. You see, I slyly I brought know, it in. Very subtle. Is it not subtle at all? So Naomi, why don't you talk about something then? What was of high quality or questionable quality today? So I had something happen that hasn't happened ever in the last year and a half that we've been covering the pandemic 
Mm. I intensely disagreed with Dr. Scott Gottlieb on Face the Nation. Whoa. I know. It was it was hard for me too. So Dr. Gottlieb was on Oh, and Margaret Brennan was back. It's her first Sunday yes. back after her like three month maternity leave. And she returns with the show, including her name now. It's now Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan. And she is chief foreign correspondent. Exactly. Which is interesting because I imagine she's based in D.C. So I don't know. <laughs> I know, how but you she can covers do a lot that. of. <laughs> <laughs> but she had a conversation with him about the new vaccine mandate that. President Biden has put out, and I, I disagree with Dr. Gottlieb. Take a listen. There's two clips here, and we'll just play them back to back. Look, states can mandate vaccines. Federal government has never done something like this before uh, outside of the U.S. military. The Republican governor of Arkansas is on TV today saying this is going to backfire. He's trying to convince his constituents to take the vaccine, and because the federal government's telling them to, he says it's going to be even harder. Practically speaking, does this mandate make sense? I think the um, downside of this mandate in terms of hardening positions and taking something that was subtly political and making it overtly political could outweigh any of the benefits that we hope to achieve. If you look at where we are right now, right now, 75 percent of adults over the age of 18 have had at least one dose of the vaccine. Most of them will complete the series. That's a very high number of people vaccinated owing to the good work of the Biden administration. We're not going to get above 90 percent. We don't even really reach 90 percent with childhood immunizations, which are mandated. So we're going to get somewhere between 80 and 90 percent. I would state that we would have gotten to 80% just on our current trajectory in short order. Perhaps with a mandate on small businesses, eventually you get to something akin to 85%, but it's going to be slow because this is going to get litigated. It takes OSHA time to implement regulations. You'll have to put in place guidance, give businesses a grace period, and then figure out what the enforcement mechanism is going to be. And in the near term, a lot of businesses that might have mandated vaccines are now going to sit on their hands and say, I'm going to wait for OSHA to tell me just how to do it and give me more political cover. So in the near term, you could actually discourage some vaccination. So I think a lot of businesses are going to opt to try to force workers to get vaccinated if, in fact, this ever goes into effect. But again, we're looking at a very long timeline here. Excuse me? Many already were, right? Many many were, exactly. Many businesses are. And I think that the federal government's action to require federal employees to get vaccinated, which is probably well within their purview to do that in a function of federal readiness, that gives plenty of political cover for more businesses, more private sector businesses to start to implement their own mandates. So I don't think we had to reach down to the level of small businesses with 100 or more employees and put a federal requirement on them. I don't think the federal government should be dictating this. I also don't think governors should be preventing small businesses from making these determinations on their own. We should leave these decisions to communities, local communities and businesses to make assessments on what what their risk is, what their settings are, how much precautions they can put in, whether yeah. vaccine requirements are an absolute necessary necessary to, to protect people in those settings. I mean, okay, Dr. Gottlieb was the former FDA commissioner under President Trump. He's probably a Republican who just happens to also be like a medical expert who we agreed a lot with during the past 18 months. But And, and I get it, like mandates and conservatism don't jive. I, I get that. But at the same time, he's talked so much about how long it's taking for people to be vaccinated. He's talked so much about, you know, why more people need to be vaccinated, like the, the risk for vulnerable people, you know, risk mitigation. Like he's been on point for so long that I kind of don't understand or I was surprised that he 
would be willing to take a slow route to get to that 80 to 90 percent vaccination rate, which should be the target. And the other thing I think is like very convenient here is that they're not talking specific states. There are certain states in this country that have much lower vaccination rates than others. Yes. Yeah. And so by kind of using this like nationwide numbers, like you're really kind of generalizing. Right. Where there's certain places that have like 30 to 50 percent vaccination rates. And I was just seeing today there's a county, I think it's in Maine, if I'm not mistaken, that is like 96 percent. Right. Exactly. So uh, it does get above 90 sometimes, you know, like it. I think that's a really good point, Naomi. My question, too, would be clearly the Biden administration does not have this all lined up, right? I mean, OSHA is going to take time to write the rules. As he said, I mean, those are all valid points, right? It's taking the administration a long time to roll this sort of thing out. Yeah, it's not a small thing to put into place. And it could very well discourage businesses from implementing things because they want to wait for OSHA. Those are all very valid points. But I wonder if in a world where the administration had all their ducks in, in line and said, this is effective, you know, such and such a date within a week or two, whether he'd be having this same pushback. Yeah, I mean, but there's also industries that are hoping to have this cut by the federal government so they can put this mandate in. Like, we don't know where, like... Right, they might want cover for it. Exactly. So, like, I don't really know what's going to be, where the line is going to be drawn in terms of businesses or industries that want the cover or don't, or are going to wait for kind of the full OSHA rules. The other thing, too, is 100 employees is a lot of employees. Right. Like, what is it? Like, I think most businesses are under 50 bus- like employees. Yeah. Which is why they didn't kind of go with the, the um, Obamacare kind of uses the 50 employee threshold. So it was just I was just very surprised, very frustrated. There were a couple of interviews after this that I thought kind of flushed out the conversation. Margaret Brennan later spoke with the superintendent of Miami-Dade uh, Unified School District. And he talked about how I think it was 13 employees have passed away in the last four to five weeks. I mean, this is not an insignificant disruption in terms of like work productivity to businesses. Like it's just. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, look at the numbers for police, right? They have a very dangerous job, but way more police have died of COVID in the last year than died on the job in a year where everyone was talking about more violent crime. I hadn't seen that. That's fascinating. It's the deadliest thing that police face right now is COVID. Yeah. So I was just really surprised by Gottlieb's soft approach in getting more people vaccinated. Especially, especially in a world where we have such an insane surge of cases, an insane surge of hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths just this summer. And we have a free accessible vaccine. Yeah. Brendan, what's your quality questionable? So I feel like this is going to be a theme. There's both quality and questionable content here. Quality... Okay, this is like your third week in a row of doing this. It's just what I like to... It's just how I see it. This is your last week. Next week, you have to choose a truly quality or truly questionable. Well, no, but much of our stuff is in this vein because it's like... It'll be like a quality set of questions and then the person who's being interviewed is all messed up. So that's what's questionable is their content. I hope everyone felt my eye roll. I (laughs) I just want to put that out there. So here's the story. Here's what's great. On Fox News Sunday... Chris Wallace sat down with Stephen Breyer. He is, if we don't know his name and haven't heard his voice, shouldn't be surprising because the guy 
like many of the Supreme Court justices, kind of goes under the radar and doesn't show up on Sunday shows, even though they are public servants and absolutely 100% should be accountable and available for questions all the time. But no. Anyway, Stephen Breyer is a part of that institution. He is an associate justice of the Supreme Court. He is 83 years old. And do you know why he's on the Sunday shows? Not because the Supreme Court is in the news, which it like dominated the news over the last few weeks. He's there because he's got a book to promote. Of course, of course, whenever it suits him. Sure, fine. These justices, I tell you. Anyway, at least he was on and good for Chris Wallace for interviewing him. And Chris Wallace did a very good job in this interview. So we're going to highlight some of the great, and I should say we, me, I am going to highlight some of the great questions, but also some of the answers that were extremely head-scratching and made me lose even more faith in the quality of the court's ability to think, reason, and explain. Here, for example, is Stephen Breyer talking about why the court can choose not to take cases even though people's rights are on the line, their way of life and livelihood is on the line because, it, you know, it just suits the court and the court can do whatever the hell it wants. And we should celebrate it. One of the most interesting parts of your book, you say at one point, it's wrong to think of the court as a political institution. But then you quickly add to say that there's a complete divorce between the court and politics isn't quite right either. Yes. Exactly. So which is it? When the court, in what I think was one of its, perhaps its greatest decision, said the words of this Constitution, which say equal protection of the law, mean that you cannot have racial segregation by law. Well, when they said that, a few years later a case comes up about marriage between a black man and a white woman. Ha! Huh. Did they hear that and say it was illegal? Frankfurter said, I believe it was Frankfurter, don't take it now. Hear the case later. Why? Because they were having a very, very, very hard time getting the South to accept their ruling. And so they're interested in that. And Earl Warren, of course, was a great political figure. And I've always thought I have no evidence, <laughs> but I've always thought that his experience in politics there led him to think, let's not take it now. Eventually they took it and they said, of course, people of different races can get married. Of course. But that timing, that timing is the kind of thing that, well, the law books don't teach you that. It's not there in the treatises. You see what I mean? In other words, even the court can't go too far, no. too fast. Do you hear the smile in his voice at the end? He's so proud of himself for talking about how the court shirked its duty because it thought mm, it might be a little too fast for the country, even though, of course, that law was wrong. And what that means is that there were families who were continued to be persecuted and arrested and fined and jailed for being in an interracial marriage. Like, that's literally his example. As our family would have been. Right. So to hell with you on that <laughs> and your smile and pride in that answer. Let's move on. Chris Wallace further pursues this question about whether politics and the Supreme Court are really so separate. So let, let's pursue that. You say judges should not play politics. 
They should not push ideology, but they do have different jurisprudential philosophies. And I want to quote you specifically. You write, some judges emphasize text and history, some emphasize purposes and consequences. But Justice Breyer, isn't that a bit of a cop-out? Because don't the judges, the textualist, almost always tilt a conservative, and don't the consequences justices, you've been accused of being that, generally lean liberal. I don't know. I mean, it's so easy to say. And uh, there is a recent case involving gay rights and uh, rights in the workplace, not right. to be far because right, of right. sexual discrimination. That was made up of a group of people, the majority there, who com they included people who emphasized consequences, uh, and they included people who emphasized absolutely pure text. You see? Is this the kind of thinking that is being employed on the Supreme Court right now? Is this level of argument sufficient? Where Chris Wallace says, and we know for a fact, there's decision after decision after decision that breaks on ideological lines more and more frequently. And Breyer says, well, let me tell you about this one example, right? Yeah, you see, there's one example. There, There's a different situation. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly, th he's, he's, that's his trump card, right? Well, there's one example otherwise, so clearly, you're wrong, Chris Wallace. What the hell? How is... But this wasn't the only, like, complete logical fallacy that made me lose faith in the thinking on the court, or at least Stephen Breyer's thinking. Listen to the next explanation by Stephen Breyer. And in this conversation, they're talking about the calls for Stephen Breyer to retire while a Democrat is president so that a Democrat can once again appoint his successor. They would say you ignored those calls and increased the chances that a Republican Senate will be there to confirm your success. Well, I mean, there are factors. There are many factors, in fact, quite a few. And the role of the court and so forth is one of them. And, and uh, the situation, the institutional considerations are some. And, and uh, I, I believe, I can't say I'd take anything perfectly into account, but in my own mind, I, I think about those things. So why didn't you retire? I didn't retire because I decided on balance I wouldn't retire. Oh, thank you for that. That's why. You decided not to retire because you decided not to retire. Excellent, excellent logical explanation for that situation. No accountability. Were there any questions about previous decisions that the court had made or how political confirmations have been? Like anything yes. acknowledging yes. kind of like what has actually happened as opposed to his like fairyland world of everything is perfect yes and chris wallace did do that i have one clip kind of related to that now chris wallace did bring up the highly partisan confirmation processes but what i thought was one of the best examples chris wallace brought up was a quote from antonin scalia himself former associate justice on the u.s supreme court appointed by reagan i interviewed your colleague, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, mm. back in 2012. Mm -hmm. And I want to play a clip from that interview. Take a, take a look. Will you time your retirement 
so that a more conservative president can appoint a like-minded justice? I would not like to be replaced by someone who immediately sets about undoing everything that I've tried to do for 25 years, 26 years. Sure. But, I mean, I shouldn't have to tell you that. <laughs> Unless you think I'm a fool. <laughs> do you agree with Scalia that a justice who is unmindful of the politics of the president who replaces him, who's unmindful of that, is a fool? I don't intend to die on the court. I don't think I'll be there forever. But, but I've, I've said a few of the considerations previously, and I, but I, do, I think— But do you think the consideration that Scalia mentioned, I don't want to be replaced by somebody who's going to undo everything that, that I've I spend? done? That I've undo everything I've done? Yeah. I see the point, and probably in your background there's could be something. There are many considerations, many, many considerations. So good for Chris Wallace in this line of questioning. I think Wallace clearly studied the book. He didn't just promote it and used the quotes from the book and from others to kind of like push and prod and try to understand a little bit of the thinking behind Stephen Breyer and the court overall. So great work by Chris Wallace. Extremely important to have these sorts of interviews on the Sunday shows. Unconscionable that we don't see more interviews of the Supreme Court justices more regularly on the Sunday shows. But my God, maybe if we did, the Supreme Court, people would have a more realistic understanding of what the hell they do and the way they think. <laughs> Who knows when the next interview will be? Might be another five years before we hear another Supreme Court justice on the Sunday news shows. Yep. Naomi, what is your leading segment? Actually, we've got something interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of like a throwback almost to our older or earlier shows, Brendan, when we would both watch all five shows or all four shows when we weren't doing Fox News Sunday yet. And we used to see themes or comparisons, especially when the same guests would be on multiple shows. And we were kind of just briefly discussing kind of our you know, early ideas and we realized we both had things we wanted to say about an interview with Vivek Murthy, who is the U.S. Surgeon General. He was on Meet the Press and also, what was he on for you? He was on State of the Union. Right. And Joe Manchin was on both of those shows as well. So we thought it might be interesting to kind of do almost like a show and tell <laughs> to each other right. about what we saw in those two interviews with those same guests. Well, and in particular for me, where I had started kind of like framing my discussion of these two interviews was around Dana Bash, who I thought did an excellent job interviewing both of these individuals. Yeah, similarly, I thought Chuck Todd was very strong in the interviews too. So who would you like to begin with, Murthy or Manchin? Brendan, let's start with the conversations and interviews about COVID and look at the interview with Vivek Murthy. Sounds great. So I thought Chuck Todd did a pretty good job in this interview. Right off the bat, you kind of could tell that this was going to be a pretty strong interview. And he starts by asking the Surgeon General what was with the about face with President Biden's mandate on getting the vaccine, where before it seemed like he wasn't ever going to do that. I want to start with, a, basically, before he even took the oath of office, President Biden uh, was very skeptical, said there wouldn't be a mandate, said he didn't think the federal government would get involved in mandates, there shouldn't be mandates, etc. cetera. Uh, now he's changed his mind. Why? Well, Chuck, from the beginning, uh, the president and all of us have said we've got to use every lever we have. 
in order to fight this pandemic. And that's what you see happening right now. Over the last several months, we've been working hard to get vaccines out to the public, partnering with the private sector, using every power the government has. And now in the face of Delta, we've got to move uh, to the next phase of that response. And that involves focusing not just on expanding uh, the vaccination effort through a combination of mandates and access, but it also involves uh, focusing on increasing our testing capacity, shoring up our healthcare systems, which are really struggling in the face of this Delta variant. Well, <laughs> it's a strong question, not the strongest answer here from the Surgeon General, but I felt like Dr. Murthy could have just said, we thought people would actually take, we thought more people would take the vaccines. Like, we were wrong on how quickly Americans would act on this. Yeah. Like, just... Just be that, honest. Yeah, like, why not just say, like, we're to blame. Americans. Americans are to blame. I really, really dislike Murthy's entire kind of style of talking smoothly and sounding like a clipped press release. And it's like, just answer the question honestly. That's kind of half of your job as a Surgeon General is to communicate to the public. And if you can't be honest about your decisions and why you're making them, then you shouldn't be in the job. His answer, oh, well, Biden always said he w- we would use all levers. What do you mean use all levers? There's plenty of things you're not doing now. Are you saying you're going to do them? There's plenty of things that you haven't done until now. Right. Why was there a delay? You could, and things that you could have done before. Right. Those, they were levers then. You didn't use them. Why? Like, this answer is totally unacceptable because it says nothing. Nothing at all. You know, there's another example of that right here where Dana Bash, and I do want to celebrate her, her questioning here because this is exactly the type of questioning we said had been missing in previous weeks when it came to administration officials, the type of questioning that demands why they're not going further in in reaching their goals. Remember, we were talking about this as it related to abortion rights and why the federal government wasn't doing more. I think it was actually Dana Bash who seemed to be accepting of kind of the first answer rather than going deeper and deeper. But here she's doing that. Take a listen to her question to Murthy on why this decision wasn't made earlier. So if these work and uh, this is what we've got to do, as you said, um, why not listen to what public health experts have been saying for a long time, which is that these mandates should have been in place a while ago. In fact, almost 60,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 just this summer. So if you were going to do it, should you have done it sooner? Well, then I think that the the aggressive actions of of, you know, earlier this week that the president announced are, are not the only set of aggressive actions uh, that we've taken in the administration. We've been working extraordinarily hard to vaccinate people. And not only that, but we've made progress. 200 million people, Dana, uh, have gotten at least one shot of the, of the vaccine. And that's one of the reasons uh, why we've actually saved many lives and many hospitalizations. Now, with Delta, which was a new a twist, a twist, if you will, a new curveball, uh, it re- has required us to take a, another set of actions. And that's what you heard the president announce. And there will be more actions that we continue to work on uh, in the days ahead, especially on the global front, uh, where we'll be taking steps and the president will be making announcements ahead of the UN General Assembly about additional measures that we're taking to help vaccinate the world. So there's a lot that's been done, a lot that we are doing now, a lot more we will continue to do, Dana. And this is what we have to do ultimately to tackle the Delta variant. So succinctly, Naomi, how would you summarize his answer there? Well, lots of people have gotten the vaccine and we've saved lots of people. 
and not acknowledging the fact that if this mandate or any mandate of any kind had been done earlier, more people could have been saved. Yeah. It's kind of like defensive rather than honest. I think the closest thing to honesty we hear there is him mentioning the Delta variant that threw a curveball, but we've known about the variant for months and months and months and months and months now. Yeah, speaking of not acknowledging the fact that the administration hasn't been using all the levers that they have in their disposal, Chuck Todd brings this up again in the interview, and he asks him why the administration has been different or has been slower than the medical experts who were advising the campaign team. When you were part of the campaign during 2020, uh, you were part of a team that emphasized we need a, a, a full response here. It's not just a vaccination approach. We've got to get testing and contact tracing going. It does feel as if the approach in the last eight months has been it's vaccines or bust. Uh, now you're, there's a new effort to enhance testing, but where, where was this the first eight or nine months? Because it does feel as if everything was focused on the vaccine. And I get it. It's the simplest way out, but it's not the only one. And we've got a mass divide in this country that's only gotten worse. Well, well, Chuck, you're, you're absolutely right that there has to be a multi-pronged strategy to address this pandemic. And we've actually been talking about that from the beginning. Vaccines are certainly the backbone of that effort. But we know that other mitigation measures like masking and distancing are important. We know that testing is a critical part of the response infrastructure. And we know that shoring up and strengthening our healthcare system so we can take care of those who are sick is essential too. Uh, in addition to those being the areas of focus of the president's announcement this week, I've actually been focusing on those over the last many months. The billions of dollars in the ARP that were put toward testing to help schools, for example, have testing in place so they could be ready uh, for the fall were a reflection uh, of that broader set of priorities. The focus on masking uh, has also been a piece of that. The recent announcement, uh, actually, that the president made that we are going to be sending tests, millions of tests, to food banks and to community health centers so that people can access them free also part of that effort another defensive answer mm -hmm, exactly basically saying no 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 you have it wrong we, we've been doing other things all along yeah and he's able to kind of give this defensive answer and it doesn't kind of look completely weak because chuck todd's question here doesn't include very like deep specifics i think you could be a lot more damaging in how poorly our testing infrastructure has improve the fact that we don't have rapid tests you know in everyone's homes at an affordable price is like an embarrassment and so there's ways that you can ask questions even harder for this defensive response to completely fall apart i think what a lot absolutely right i think what a lot of these questions are skirting around but i wished there was like a direct confrontation on was look guys in the Biden administration, we truly understand what's going on here. Joe Biden and the administration was sure COVID was over in the summer. We know that because Biden talked about independence from the virus on July 4th. And even though there was a Delta wave that had ravaged India and that was making its way through the U.S. at that exact moment, growing and growing, we saw it, right? You could see it on those graphs as more and more of the percent of people getting the virus were getting this Delta variant and the variance percentage of total, the total number of people getting it, it just kept growing and growing and growing. We saw it coming, but the administration was slow to react and had kind of lifted a lot of these measures and 
put, taking their foot off the gas on things like testing, contact tracing, the the availability of tests, the the restrictions around masking, all of that the administration was letting up on and was very, very slow to recognize that we had a horrendous surge coming in this country. And that's what I wish they confronted them on, was like, it's so obvious what happened. And others were saying, you're doing the wrong thing. Why are you letting up? Why are you saying that this is this is over? And so the question is like, what went wrong there? Why wasn't the administration listening to these healthcare experts? Or are experts within the administration that wrong about things? And if so, why are they still in their jobs? It's a serious, serious issue. You know, it reminds me of at the beginning of this week, George Stephanopoulos reflects on 9-11. And he has a line after talking about that and says, And the president returns to the White House this week to address what may be the greatest threat to our country since 9-11. For 18 months, the COVID pandemic has consumed our country. Like, what are you talking about? There are so many more people who died just this summer by COVID-19 than died in the war on terror ever in the U.S. Like, not even counting just the 9-11 date. This is a serious issue, and the failure of the administration this summer is a very, very serious topic. I've got one more example. For Dr. Murthy? Yes. Okay, what do you got? So this is Dana Bash pushing Vivek Murthy on the question of something else that the federal government, even to this day, is not doing, not pulling one of those important levers. This is a question that also came up, I want to note, on this week when George Stephanopoulos was speaking with Vivek Murthy, but Dana Bash did a much better job pushing and pushing and pursuing and actually getting to something of an honest answer. The government is already mandating masks to travel on a plane or a train, but I don't know if you've had this this experience, but I've been on planes recently. You're sitting there. People lift up their masks to eat and to drink. That's understandable. So given that reality as a public health official, would it be a good idea to mandate the vaccine for travel on that plane or on a train? Well, then I'm glad you bring up travel because there are measures in what the president announced that will apply to travel, including a, a doubling, uh, you know, the fines, you know, for those who do not observe uh, some of those precautions, especially around masks on airplanes and other forms of transport. You know, I think, Dana, the, the important thing for us uh, to remember is that in order to keep travel safe, it requires all of us to do our part, and vaccines certainly help in that regard. Uh, but I've actually been impressed as I've traveled by how many people are, I believe, trying to stick to these regulations. But folks should know that if you're worried about your risk when you travel, one of the most important things you can do to reduce the risk of a serious uh, outcome with uh, when it comes to COVID-19, including hospitalization or, God forbid, death, is to get vaccinated. If you're around other people, even if they well, have why the not virus, mandate? if you are vaccinated. Why not do a mandate there just like you've done in the expanded uh, new protocols that the president announced last night, uh, last week? Well, look, and, and certainly, you know, th th that's a reasonable question to ask. But one of the things we have to consider with every uh, decision we make is the equity concerns as well. And we know that when it comes to mandating vaccines for travel, there are important issues around equity that would have to be worked out uh, to ensure that people, for example, if they had to travel in the case of an emergency to see a relative who got sick, would be able to do that, uh, even if you know, they weren't vaccinated. We need to find a safe way for that to happen. So there are important considerations there uh, that we, we need to weigh. So a few things about this clip stand out on the second listening. First of all, great job for Dana Bash following up. I do wish her questions weren't 
quite as, is it a good idea to mandate the vaccine for travel on that plane or a train? I wish it was more like public health officials are saying that it's a good idea. Why are you not doing it? Rather than asking him if it's a good idea. So that's a little annoying. But his answer here saying, well, if you're worried about your risk when you travel, you should take the vaccine. What about the kids who can't take the vaccine, who have to travel with their parents? What about the people who have compromised immune systems? Millions of Americans. Are they just not supposed to travel then? Because traveling can be a very dangerous thing when those people are exposed in very close quarters that are not social distanced with others who are at some point on that trip going to take that mask off to sip that water or eat something or whatever, which they are allowed to do. And finally, I do think that Murthy's providing a real answer here about uh, equity issues and they haven't figured that stuff out. But is that like a sufficient answer to you? If someone has to travel because another relative is sick and doesn't have the vaccine, then we've got to make sure that people who are unvaccinated can travel. It's just such, it's weird logic. Like make these travel spaces as safe as possible. Like period. And that person who's unvaccinated, if they want to travel and they get vaccinated, then it'll be safer for them. Right. (laughs) I don't, I, I like, I don't understand how you can accept not safe. <laughs> or 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 make it like workplaces, right? Say, look, you either have to have your vaccine or you have to have a test, right? And we'll do rapid tests at all the airports. Or we'll have the dogs at the airports, which, by the way, this is something I just learned last week. There are two dogs at the Miami International Airport who have been trained to detect COVID. They smell the masks of employees. This is a pilot project. But they have been determined to be up to 99, I think it's 99.6% effective at determining whether someone actually has COVID. It's unbelievable how effective these dogs are, and they're instantaneous in their detection, unlike a lot of these tests, which are take time, right? So there's just so many things you could do. It's maddening. It is maddening, because as parents of a child, a baby, who cannot be vaccinated, it is not safe for us to travel, period. Period. Maddening. Let's move on to the next interview, shall yes, we? Yes, that will not be maddening. Joe Manchin is never maddening. <laughs> He's never maddening. <laughs> okay, so the interview with Joe Manchin. My immediate impression of the interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press is Chuck Todd is just like, what do you want? Like, what are you going to do? Are you really going to do that? Really? Like, <laughs> that's how you could like kind of summarize Chuck Todd's questions. And He's tired of being like, jerked around by this guy like joe manchin jerks everyone around yeah the first question i thought was interesting where chuck todd uses a clip from nancy pelosi speaker house speaker of the house nancy pelosi and pretty much says like listen you're not happy with this what are you going to cut what are you going to ask them to cut let me start my my first question and actually i'm going to cede to the speaker of the house take a listen to what she said i want you to respond sure. to her. where would you cut child care Family medical leave paid for, universal pre-K, home health care, so important. I think that's what I hear a lot from from Democrats uh, on Capitol Hill. It's like, we get it. We get what he's not for. But but how do you get there? So what should not be included? Well, Chuck, first of all, everything that the speaker, which I have the greatest respect for, has mentioned Mm -hmm. that I've been for and voted for. Mm -hmm. We spent $5.4 trillion dollars. And a lot of that really continues way into next year. We haven't dispersed it all. 
only thing I've said, put a pause on. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't we basically put a pause on with all the unknowns that we have right now we're facing? Don't know where COVID's going to go. Inflation is still very high and rampant. And then on top of that, the geopolitical unrest that we have going on, we might be challenged there. Don't you think we ought to be prepared for that? Since we don't have the emergency that we had with the American Rescue Plan when the president first came in and we passed. I love it how he's like, yeah, these are important, but let's not do anything about them. Not a thing. <laughs> what? Because, <laughs> you know, the Democrats have this extremely small window of having any power to do anything. But let's let's just put a pause on it. And and wait till it's like closer closer to the election. Yeah, that's gonna be better. What? What? <laughs> he lives on the timeline and planet of Justice Breyer, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of that, Dana Bash just pursued, pursued, pursued Joe Manchin to nail him down. I have example after example of this. It's just like there's so many great examples. I want to just play them all for you. But let's take a look at her question about kind of, as you mentioned, Naomi, timeline. Vulnerability that we have, Dana, right now, we don't know what happened with this COVID. It's awful coming back the way it is with the vengeance. We don't know about inflation. We know it's running rampant right now. I can tell you in West Virginia, inflation's running rampant. And on top of that, the challenges we're going to have, geopolitical challenges, shouldn't we be prepared? So I want to ask you about a lot of that. But are you saying it's the price tag? It's the timeline? Both. It's the urgency. Do we have the urgency to do what, what they're wanting to do in such a quick period of time? But can you can you be specific? Okay, let's just let's talk about the, the dollar sign. Yeah. Do you have a specific number in mind? Here's a number you should be getting to. First of all, I have agreed to get on to the reconciliation because that's the time for us to make financial adjustments mm-hmm. and changes. I thought the twenty seventeen tax tax code and tax law, the way it was changed, was very, very, very unfair and it was weighted to the heavy to the wealthy. So what's the number? And the bottom line is what the number would be what, what's going to be competitive in our tax code. I believe that the corporate rate should be at 25, not 21. But what's the overall number for the budget I, you know, bill? I think that you're going to have to look at it and find out what you're able to do through a reasonable, responsible way. So then and how do you know that it's not 3.5? It's going to be at one, one and a half. We don't know where it's going to be. So you think ballpark one, going, one and a half? It's not going to be at three and a half, I can assure you. Good for Dana Bash here. Yeah. This is amazing. Joe Manchin had a similar kind of answer at one point in the interview with Chuck Todd saying, like, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, what's going to happen with COVID and geopolitical state of the world and inflation? And, you know, we we need to have the resources in case any of that stuff, like, demands something of us. As if child care and home health care and universal pre-K, all of those demands stop. (laughs) And don't exist when any well, of no, those demands have to take a pause. Yeah, they take a pause. They take a pause. That's true. We just like stop worrying about them. But Chuck Todd didn't go nearly into the specifics, kind of saying like, "Well, what is your thing? Is it timeline? Is it price? Like, what what do you want?" Right. And then I love where he's he's like trying to give himself all this room to just say, "Well, I don't like what your specific number is, but we've got to look at it." She's like, "If you." are reserving judgment until you look at it and you say you haven't looked at it, then how do you know that their number's wrong? He just wants to say, you're wrong, but I'm not going to give you what I think is right. He's like the worst kind of critic. (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with it, but I don't like it. (laughs) I'm not going to look at it right now, but I I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like inviting someone to your Thanksgiving dinner. and You're like, no, 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 I I don't eat that. Like, well, what is that? Like that, like something in there, something in this, on this table, like I I don't eat. Like, 
but is it the turkey? Is it the cranberry sauce? Is it the stuffing? I, I'm not sure, but I bet when we like look into it, I'm not I'm not gonna like something. <laughs> you could eat everything else, <laughs> jerk. <laughs> like what the hell? Why did you eat it until you get to something that you actually don't like? Or just sit the f down, <laughs> just like whatever. There was a really great back and forth with Chuck Todd, specifically about the pay fors and pretty much how he he being Joe Manchin is being a bit hypocritical, protesting the pay fors in the reconciliation bill that uses the same strategies that the Senate infrastructure team used, and suddenly it's in their no, bipartisan bill. In the bipartisan bill, right? But suddenly those are no longer appropriate. If right now it seems as if the plan is to pay for as much of this as I can, is whatever they come up with with the pay for is that is that your that is that plan, your ceiling? If it's two trillion, the plan I mean, also Chuck had in that you could borrow up to one point seven trillion. Okay, that mm-hmm. was in in the bill. Right. Okay. We see where this is going. They want to pay for about two trillion deficit spend with dynamic scoring. Look, the infrastructure bill that you helped facilitate has dynamic scoring. Which some would argue is deficit spending until we see if the economic growth we actually does. We could have paid help. for that very easily without any of the but dynamic scoring, but because you know why? They wouldn't go for it. They wouldn't right. basically allow us move in that direction. So why is it okay to do this. that and you don't want to no, do no, that? No, no, we're still going to do some dynamic scoring and all that, but let's be responsible and reasonable about it. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Chuck, the, the, the thing of it is, is we've got to get back to this country to where we, uh, that we can look at each other and agree to disagree and then work through our differences. That's where the Senate comes in. That's a deliberate body that we have. Who would have thought we'd have got 19 Republicans to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure, right. the hard the physical, infrastructure. Physical infrastructure? And that's right. the most urgent need that we have. So I, I hadn't realized this before today, and it just underscores how irrational this fight is. I mean, literally, the payment, the, the, the pay for strategies are or part of the pay for strategies are what is used in the bipartisan bill that were lauded but suddenly they're an issue well and mansion says i look at how they're paying for this is terrible <laughs> and then he's told well that's what you do in the bipartisan infrastructure and he gets to well we had to <laughs> it's like well so you're against it no i'm for it that's fine but let's be reasonable about it it's like why is it reasonable what you What's did? A- Oh, my God. Wow. Okay, so here's a moment, another moment that I was waiting for Dana Bash to do, and she did it because she just spoke to Ron Klain, the chief of staff of President Biden, a week or so ago. And Ron Klain said Joe Manchin shouldn't be worried about inflation and worried about the debt because this bill is not going to add to it. Dana Bash asked Manchin, Exactly that. Okay, so let's uh, talk about how this would be paid for. The White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, told me on this show Mm -hmm. last week that you are, quote, very persuadable (laughs) on this budget bill because he says it will be paid for. It won't add to the debt. It won't add to inflation. If you're paying for it with inflated numbers from the standpoint is the tax code. The numbers that they're wanting to pay for it and the tax changes they want to make, is that competitive? Does it keep us competitive or not? I believe there's some changes made that does not keep us competitive. Meaning don't increase the well, I'm, don't increase taxes on I'm, corporations. I'm just no, no, I want to increase taxes on corporations. I've spoken to corporations. So what, I want so the what wealthy, specifically are I want you the saying? wealthy to play their fair share. But if you're up higher to the point to where you are that can be competitive globally, then it's going to be counterproductive. Everyone's looking at this in a whole complete different way than 
I think maybe I am or other people, or the people are just keeping quiet. The bottom line is, do we have the urgency to spend another $3.5 trillion right now? The most urgent thing that we have to do is get the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's gone left unattended for over 30 years, deferred maintenance throughout every part of our nation. So he kept doing that. He kept coming back again and again. Basically, his point is, I want that bipartisan bill passed. I don't want to deal with this reconciliation thing. We need to do a pause on this. I've got problems with it. Stop telling me there's logical problems with my arguments against it. I don't care. I want the bipartisan bill. That's what I want passed. That seemed to be his kind of... He tried to pretend that he had legitimate issues with the reconciliation bill. And as Dana Bash kept knocking those down, and it looks like Chuck Todd did the same, he just kept going back again and again and again. We need this infrastructure bill. We need this infrastructure bill. He hates that they are connected. Right. And he hates that they're connected and and that he's essentially going to have to decide if something he fought so hard for, he's not, in terms of the bipartisan bill, he's not willing to do the same for his Democratic colleagues. But Dana Bash doesn't let him divert the conversation in that way quite yet. She tries to nail him down on what he means about the corporate tax rate, tries to get to the specifics. Let's just stay on uh, what they call here in Washington the pay-fors, how your fellow Democrats want to pay for this. They're looking at increasing the corporate tax rate, closing existing loopholes, raising taxes on wealthy Americans, trying to get money back from, um, get the IRS IRS, to get money back. I agree with all of that. I agree with And they say they can add that up to 3.5 and there will be not not a dollar. This is what they're saying. I understand, but we just just disagree. You just just don't believe them? No, I don't believe them. I'm just saying that those rates are not going to be competitive to find out the money. Here's the difference. They're looking for 3.5 trillion. I'm looking for a competitive tax rate. Okay, I want to make the adjustments and changes. They're looking for basically. What does competitive tax rate mean? Can you? Can you have to be globally competitive. Then you have to be globally competitive. Right, but, you but, can't be. But you can you give? An, can you first explain? First you can't be at 39 percent as far as uh, cap gains, capital gains. I said 28 all in. Okay, you can't be at 28 or 30 or more with a, a corporate net. I said 25 all in. There was a similar question here on Meet the Press, but I just got to say, Dana Bash did a better job than Chuck Todd, at least in the <laughs> clips that I'm looking at here. Yeah, she's just like, okay, you're saying these words. What does that mean? Define it. What's the number? Stop just talking in vagueness. Like, we're sick of the vagueness, you know? It's it's rubber to the road here. What are you? Do you, Can you defend what you're saying or not? Do you have something to say or not? And ultimately, he does have some numbers, right? She's able to wring these numbers out of him. So my guess is, and now she didn't get to this, is if the Democrats take all your numbers and they're able to get that to add up to 3.5, are you for 3.5? And then he'd probably go back to, let's just put a pause. Let's just wait. <laughs> so on the two shows that I covered that, that talked to Joe Manchin, and that was this week, and that was State of the Union, They both interviewed Joe Manchin and then had an interview with Bernie Sanders. And multiple times, Bernie Sanders said, this isn't Bernie Sanders versus Joe Manchin. And at first, I I like understood that as him saying, look, the Democrats are on the same page. This isn't like a personal spat between the two of us. We're just kind of working this out. But on the This Week interview, Bernie Sanders explained it a little differently. Bernie Sanders explained it as 
don't pretend that this is a, a question like a fight between me and Joe Manchin. This is an issue where the president, the leadership, Democratic leadership in the House, the Democratic leadership in the Senate, and Bernie Sanders are all in agreement. We are all in agreement. This is all of the Democrats versus Joe Manchin. That's basically what Bernie Sanders meant by that. And he went even further on this week. Take a listen to this clip where he lays it out. But is, is, no, is no bill, let's say, you know, Senator Manchin has, wouldn't put a timeline on it, but he's come out for about $1.5 trillion in the reconciliation bill. Is, is no bill better than $1.5 trillion? Look, what the issue is here is when you have an overwhelming majority of working families in America who want us to do that, when you got the president, when you had over 90% of the people in the House, over 90% of the senators want to do it. The real question you should be asking, is it appropriate for one person to destroy two pieces of legislation? Look, Joe Manchin has the right to get his views heard. He's a member of the United States Senate from the great state of West Virginia. He has to sit down with all of us and we'll work it out. Now, we did, as you know, we had the same exact problem in the American Rescue Plan, which to my mind was enormously successful in getting us out of the economic uh, recession that took place as a result of COVID. So that's the line that stood out to me. The real question you should be asking is, is it appropriate for one person to destroy two pieces of legislation? Yeah, that's pretty damning. Yeah. (laughs) I think Bernie is smart. I mean, he's on the chair of the budget committee right now. So I think he's learning a lot on how to make this not a Bernie fight. But this is something that the party has come together on. Yeah. And it's not he's he's one voice in many who right. are pushing for this. He's not the fringe voice anymore. The fringe voice is the person who can't get on board. That's exactly. what he's trying to redefine the situation as. And multiple times, Bernie said, I support the progressive members of the House who say they will not vote for the bipartisan bill until this reconciliation bill is done. So quite an interesting situation and it's I, what I find interesting, too, here is that, you know, anyone who knows us, Naomi, knows that we are not necessarily the biggest fans of Bernie Sanders. Well, I think anyone who's followed this show for a while yes. might also gather that. Yes. Just to, even in terms of his questioning, you know, his, his answers often are repetitive and his messaging is often repetitive, although he has become way better in recent years. But in this situation... Bernie Sanders is like a breath of fresh air compared to Joe Manchin. It's true. We have to admit it. The vagueness of Joe Manchin demands the detailed, detailed questions and follow-up that we heard from Dana Bash. And so I just give her so much credit. Absolutely. She did did an amazing job in this interview. Yeah. She didn't just give him a platform to write his stupid op-eds that he writes every few weeks. Or every few months saying like, oh, I'm he not He has these, editor, these opinion editors on freaking speed dial. Yeah. And they let him just print a bunch of vague, oh, I'm not quite sure. I don't really know. And we need, you know, it's so important to uphold the traditions and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's the same thing he's written a million times with no specifics. And they just give him a platform for it, all these newspapers. And so good for Dana Bash and in this instance, Chuck Todd for saying, I'm not giving you a free platform to spew whatever you want. Like you come on the show and you're going to face tough questioning and you're going to need to be specific and you're going to need to have an answer. And if you don't, you're going to look like an idiot. That's exactly right. (laughs) All right, Naomi. Well, a fiery episode, if I ever 
had one if i ever saw it, one. it felt very like kind of nice to be talking about the same thing ish back and forth i know i like that see if we'll do it more perhaps well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge. I think our challenge this week would be... I would say press people for specifics. Don't let them be vague. We let vagueness, like, suffuse our lives and our... Suffuse our Yes, lives. and our conversations. And it can get very annoying. You know, it seems very easy to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get together sometime. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, get together yeah. soon. Yeah, and it's like, to hell with that. Put a date on it or don't do it. <laughs> We are the planning ones of our <laughs> friend circle. But if you have any specific questions for us, or even vague ones, we'll actually also welcome vague ones, but we are especially like the specific questions. You are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at tweet them at me as well at Soto Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at Beastidal, and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.